invite you to turn with me to Malachi chapter 2, verse 17. Malachi 2, 17. We're going to be looking today at the Lord's plan for bringing about justice in the world. It's common, it's very common, to question God's justice. Now there are legitimate questions about you know, how He is just. You know, when we look at our world that sometimes appears to, to be lacking in justice, where justice goes perverted or left unserved. But so often questions about God's justice are really accusations that God is unjust. How could God let this happen? That's really more of an accusation than a, you know, a question about his justice. Um, when we were in Habakkuk, we talked about the issue of God's justice. We talked about his control over the world and how that works when we look out and see a, a rebellious world set against the Lord. And now in Malachi, the issue of God's justice comes back. This is a common, a common question that people have had, have now, and have always had. And so we see a form of questioning God's justice, we're going to see as we read here in a bit, a form of questioning God's justice that's really more of an attack on him, more of an accusation against God. And so while questions exist, you know, legitimate questions, uh, and, and, and things we don't understand about God's justice, maybe, and, and uh, an accusation against him, the fact is, God is just, and he will bring about justice. And he explains a little of how this will be the case in Malachi. And so where we're going uh, today, in today's sermon, we're looking at the Lord's plan for bringing about justice. And we're going to see first that it centers on Jesus Christ. Second, it involves purifying some through Jesus. And thirdly, it involves judging the rest. So that's, that's where we're going to look at the Lord's plan for bringing about justice. So first... It centers on Jesus Christ. So I invite you to read uh, Malachi 2.17 with me, and we'll jump into the text. It says, You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, How have we wearied him? By saying, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, Where is the God of justice? So once again, uh, we see a dispute between the Lord and his people here. This is common. Uh, throughout Malachi, we've seen this several times. And the accusation here is that the people are wearying the Lord with their words. Of course, God is not a man that he would actually become tired. But it gives us this visual, it gives us a picture of the offensive nature of the repeated complaints. We know what it's like to be wearied or exacerbated by the same question over and over. All the parents said, amen. But it's even more so when it's a kid, you know, it still it can still get to you. Um, but it's even more wearying and exhausting when it's a question that impugns you, that makes, uh, that, that insinuates something bad about your character, that maligns you. If you hear this repeated, that would be incredibly exhausting. This is the picture at least that's given, of what these people are doing to the Lord. And the people ask, how is it? How is this the case? 
How have we wearied him? So once again, they don't see it. Once again, they're clueless about this, which we have seen throughout this, this book. And so the Lord explains. Malachi explains to them that there are two ways they weary him. First, by saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. I mean, this is an insidious attack on the character of God. They look around, and they see the bad people prospering, while they languish in you know, uh, poor to mediocre living conditions. If you remember last week, we, we mentioned, uh, if you jump down to 3 verse 11, um, they, they were, uh, there, there was famine, there was pestilence they were, they were dealing with, their crops weren't great, they're really not a prosperous nation at this time, at this point in their history. Though they've been promised a Messiah, though they've been promised someone to rescue them and to throw off the shackles of oppression, they're still under Persian rule at this point. Their enemies, outright wicked people within Israel, without from Israel, outside of Israel, prosper. And if the assumption is that prosperity is automatically a sign of God's favor and poverty a sign of divine disfavor, well then, the conclusion is God delights in those that are wicked. That's what they actually accuse him of. He delights in them. The second way they weary the Lord is by asking, where is the God of justice? It's the second claim. So if God's not outright delighting in the wicked and, and you know, by, by helping them prosper, then he must be absent. His claim to be just uh, is brought into question. Everything around us suggests he's not just. Where is this God of justice? That's quite the claim he's made. It's not, doesn't appear to be so. And so together, these two, two uh, repeated claims of theirs are blasphemous charges against God. They're accusing him of moral evil. If you read it carefully, he delights in these wicked people. He, they're accusing God of evil. In the exact opposite of his claim to be good, his claim to be just. So in Isaiah 5.20, the Lord declared a woe on those who called evil good and good evil. Those who twist around what is good and, and what is evil, he pronounces a, a judgment upon, a woe against these people. And yet here, they claim that God is doing that very thing. He's delighting in those that do this. In Isaiah 30, verse 18, we're told, just straight out, the Lord is a God of justice. And yet here, they accuse him of wickedness and they question this claim. Oh, wait, oh really? Where is this God of justice? Now, we do see in Scripture, we see people ask uh, questions about God's justice in a way that's reverent, in an attitude that is respectful and, and reverent. We saw that, I think, even in Habakkuk when we were there. It's okay to, to wonder how God may be just when things maybe don't make sense to us. It's okay to have questions. How does this fit with what I read in Scripture? Just if you, if you have a question like that, it doesn't automatically mean you're, you're wicked. But what we're seeing here is these people didn't have a reverent attitude like that as they came before the Lord. They were attacking him. They're actually accusing him of moral evil. 
of being exactly the opposite of what he has revealed himself to be to Israel. And so in verse 1, the Lord responds. And he explains what he's going to do. How, how he will act in a way that is fully just. How it is he's going to deal with wickedness, with this rampant evil. So let's read verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So there's two things he says he's going to do. The first, he says he's going to send a messenger who will prepare the way before me. And then secondly, he says the Lord himself will come suddenly to the temple. So the Lord is telling people, I'm sending my messenger to prepare the way, and then I'm coming. How, where is the God of justice? How is this going to play out? I'm sending a messenger, and then I'm going to come. Then the Lord is going to come. And there are prophecies, or these prophecies, um, are unmistakably in the New Testament... Uh, clearly we're, we're told, refer to, and are fulfilled in John the Baptist and in Jesus Christ, in Christ's coming, and John's preparing the way for him. So John the Baptist was the messenger who prepared the way, and Jesus Christ was the Lord who came suddenly. So first, uh, with regard to the messenger who pre prepared the way, as we read earlier in the service, Jesus cites Malachi 3.1. And says explicitly that it refers to John. So in, in Matthew 11.10, as they went away, Jesus began to teach the crowds concerning John. John the Baptist. And then he says in verse 10, This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Also the words in Malachi 3.1, where it says that uh, this messenger will prepare the way before me. Uh, this picks up on Isaiah's well-known prophecy from Isaiah 40, 3 to 5, which this will sound familiar to you if you've been much, you spent much time in the church or read your Bible much at all. Isaiah 40, 3 to 5, Isaiah says, speaks of a voice, cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And verse 5 says, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. So here in Isaiah, you have a messenger preparing the way of the Lord, and then this being followed by the glory of the Lord being revealed. That's what Isaiah is talking about. So it's very similar. It's really the same thing we see in Malachi. A preparatory messenger preparing the way, followed by the Lord himself. All four Gospels um, quote that passage from Isaiah 40, verse 3. Uh, and, and say John fulfilled that. They all quote that passage in reference to John. John is the one who prepared the way for the Lord, and it's really the same, the same thing that Malachi is saying here. <clears throat> to prepare the way means to remove obstacles. It was the custom of Eastern kings to send a messenger before they would arrive in a city, and he would prepare the way for that king, remove obstacles to his arrival. So when we get to the end of Malachi, uh, chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, we're going to see this reference to Elijah, and, and even what we read earlier from Matthew eleven ten 10, um, also applies that to John the Baptist. So we'll talk more about John the Baptist's ministry as we, as we get to the end of Malachi. 
Uh, but here, clearly, it's a reference to John. A messenger will be sent, God says, before me. And then the Lord, whom you seek, he says, which I think is somewhat sarcastic, you know, oh, you, where's the Lord? The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, which I think is likewise sarcastic, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. I take the Lord that is coming, and then you see this reference to this messenger of the covenant to be the same person. So this is an interesting verse in the way it's uh, worded. He says here, um, all of this is coming from the, the, the mouth of the Lord of hosts. You see that at the end of verse 1, uh, says the Lord of hosts, uh, Yahweh of hosts. Uh, he says the messenger, John, will prepare the way before me. So we find out the Lord is coming, Yahweh is coming. But then he switches to the third person and says, and the Lord will suddenly come, who is the messenger of the covenant, I would say. So it could be confusing. Is Yahweh coming? You know, he's going to prepare the way before me. Or is he sending someone, this Lord? And the answer is yes. The tension of this is resolved in the New Testament as further revelation is given about God and about who God is. God is three persons in one. He's one divine nature, but he's three persons. So as we see in the New Testament, the Father sends the Son. And the Son is, in fact, Emmanuel. He is God with us. And so John the Baptist prepared the way for the Lord himself to come. God himself would visit his people as the second person of the Godhead came, the Son, and took on human flesh and dwelt among human beings. And again, Malachi says that this messenger, John, would prepare the way before me. And so this is why John can say, after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry, are not worthy to untie, in Matthew 2.11. That's why he can say this, because he knows the Lord is coming. And straight up he says in, in John 1.34, this is the Son of God. And in John, Son of God is very clearly uh, a reference to the divinity of Christ. It's a divine title for Jesus. So John understood this. And again, the prophecy from Isaiah 40 that's very similar to Malachi 3 here says there that this messenger is going to prepare the way for Yahweh, for the Lord. And so Jesus, he's no mere man. Additionally, the deity of Christ, it's not something that uh, you know, these men in the New Testament times read back into the Old Testament and, and somehow you know, violate the text and insert that Jesus is, is the Son of God or Jesus is God. It's here. It's here in Malachi. It's veiled. It's not crystal clear, but it's here. The Lord says he's coming and he says he's sending someone. How does that work? Because he sends Christ Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. So Jesus is Emmanuel. He is God with us. And the Lord told the people of Malachi's day that this would be his response to sin. Where is this God of justice? I'm sending a messenger, and then the Lord will come to his temple suddenly. God 
was not absent. God had a plan the whole while, the whole time. He was awaiting the day. He was awaiting the time when the, the fullness of time would come. And he would send forth his son to be born of a virgin. And he informed his people of this in Malachi's day some 400 years before Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. And they would need to wait for this day in faith and in expectation, trusting that God is in fact a God of justice, that God did have a plan, that sinners would not go unpunished, the wicked would not go unpunished, rather God is in fact just and will make things right. He does have, have a plan. As Again, as we saw in Habakkuk, the, the world may seem out of control, but the Creator God is in control in ways that we cannot fully understand, we cannot fully fathom. Moreover, God is and will be just. He's in control and He is just. And His plan for bringing about justice centers on Jesus Christ making things right. And so if we want to know God the best we can, see God the best we can, we need to look to Christ. If we want to know how God's going to make all things new, how He's going to make things right, then we need to look to Jesus. And that's what we will continue to do as we continue to walk through Malachi chapter 3 here. As the Lord reveals more of what it is He would do when He comes. So the Lord's plan for bringing about justice, it centers on Christ, and it involves purifying sums. Second point of the outline, purifying sums. Read with me verses 2 to 4. So the Lord's going to come, but who can endure the day of His coming? And who can stand when He appears? For He is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former days. People often say things like, if the Lord would just show up and make himself known, then everything would just be so much easier. And no doubt this is what they thought. If God would just... In Malachi's day, if the Lord would just show up here and be just, then we, you know, this would be better for us. But, perhaps surprisingly, to those who, in Malachi's day, with regard to the coming of the Lord, we're told, but who can endure the day of His coming? And who can stand when He appears? The Lord is not a cuddly animal. He's one who is to be feared. And we've seen this the last couple of weeks, and we see it at the end of verse 5. Part of the problem of these wicked people in Malachi's day is they do not fear the Lord. And these folks, they, they, they just, oh, I wish that God would come and be justice. But he says, bring justice. But he says here that when he comes, nobody's going to be able to stand before him. That's not what they had in mind. That's not what people have in mind today when they, they oh, I wish God would just show up. Really? <laughs> really. There's this assumption that if justice was served, I would be rescued. But we must not rush to that conclusion or presumptuously hold such a view. 
the rest of verses 2 to 4 describe Christ's work as being a purifying and refining work, which will cleanse the Levites, the priestly tribe, resulting in righteous offerings to the Lord. So if you'll remember, the Levites, the priests, have been offering polluted offerings. Back in chapter 1, verse 7, we see that. Polluted offerings, sickly, pathetic sacrifices to the Lord. But the Lord says he would come to purge them of their sin so that righteous offerings would be made. And then in verse 4, the offerings, as a result of this, the offerings of the whole community, Judah and Jerusalem, we're told, would be pleasing to the Lord once again, as in the days of old, as in former days when they worshipped the Lord rightly, when his people worshipped him rightly. So one of the ways that the Lord would deal with sin is by purging it from his people so that their offerings to him then might be pure. And this purifying process in these verses is likened to a metal worker who heats up gold and silver to refine it, to burn away the impurities. And it's likened to fuller soap, to uh, someone who washes clothes with soap, uh, removing stain from a garment. And this is, this is actually uh, remarkable. This is actually quite amazing. Because right after being told that nobody can stand before the Lord when he comes, we're not told that the first thing he's going to do is destroy everybody and therefore prove himself just. Rather, we're told he'd bring about purification that would lead to true worship. God could, he could have just showed up, wiped out everybody. There, justice. You want justice? There it is. And he comes, who can stand before this, this, the Lord? But the first thing we're told is he's going to purify. We're not explicitly told here in Malachi how this cleansing would take place. Uh, notice though, um, what's not happening here. He's not going to just look the other way. There is a purging. There is a purifying. There is a washing clean, a refining that's taking place. It's not sweeping under the rug. It's not looking the other way, which is, I think, how most people would like the Lord to handle their sin. Instead, there's going to be a purging, a cleansing of this sin. And we're not explicitly told how this would take place, but it's clear in the New Testament how. Jesus Christ, the Lord came on the heels of John the Baptist's ministry and he announced the year of the Lord's favor. He preached good news. The Messiah, long ago foretold, has now arrived. He has come. The one spoken of 400 years before in the book of Malachi and many years before that throughout all the prophets, the one to whom the law and prophets all pointed, has come. He came to a people deserving judgment and condemnation but he brought a message of peace. These people he came to, and in fact all people, deserve God's judgment. Indeed, none can stand before him. But Jesus would come to seek and to save the lost. And he died on the cross in the place of sinners to take their penalty for their sin upon himself. And he rose again from the dead. The God of justice could not possibly just turn a blind eye to the sins of his people. And so Jesus, 
The Son of God paid the penalty for all who would trust in Him. God's wrath there, the cross, was poured out on His Son, and the perfect Son of God died a sinner's death, though He knew no sin, was without sin Himself. And Paul says this occurred in the end of Romans 3, so that God might be both just and the justifier of sin. He can forgive people of their sin because a penalty has been paid. He, it would be unjust to simply sweep it aside or to look the other way, but he can forgive because Jesus has paid a penalty for sinners. After rising from the dead, Jesus then commissioned his disciples and all who would come after him, including us who believe, to take this good news. The good news that Jesus died, rose again from the dead to the world, and to preach the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name, to call on all men and women everywhere to repent, trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins while there is still time, while there is still opportunity. And the promise is this. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us, but if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You hear that cleansing, that fuller soap. And so for all who trust in Christ Jesus, our sin is forgiven. And while we still fight sin in the flesh, our complete and our final deliverance from sin is assured on the basis of Jesus Christ and His life and death on the cross and His resurrection. Because of Christ and His work, we can be forgiven. And He will now, and He now intercedes for us and says He will complete this work. He will finish this work of cleansing us. Though we still now fight with and wrestle with our sin. And ultimately, this will be when Christ returns. Death and sin will finally and forever be done away with. And all who trust in Christ, 1 Corinthians 15, will receive immortal bodies, resurrected bodies, and forever we will be with the Lord. And so those who are made right with God are only done so because God takes our sins seriously very seriously, and has made an end of it through Jesus Christ, through His Son, the Messiah, predicted and foretold right here in Malachi chapter 3. And because of this gracious gift of salvation, all who are trusting in Jesus Christ can now offer our very lives as sacrifices to Him, holy and acceptable, pleasing to Him. Our offerings... We are offering offering ourself, and it is pleasing to Him if we are cleansed by Christ. So I want to add one other thing. He mentions here cleansing the Levites, and in Acts 6-7 we're told that a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. In Acts 6-7. So indeed the Lord Jesus did come and cleanse the Levites as He said He would, and as He does for all who trust Him. In him. And so until Christ returns, until he comes back, it is the year of the Lord's favor. He's not done yet saving people for his own possession. 
Amazingly, this is a season we live in in which grace is extended to sinners who cannot otherwise stand before the Lord. And so really our main application from this is that if you have not, you need to repent of your sin and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Now is the time to cast ourselves on the great mercy of God that we might be saved from our sin. And if you do believe this, then we must continue to find our joy and find our strength in Christ. The hope of all mankind has come. So easily, we just forget this. And so easily, we get weighed down by concerns, by busyness of our week, by real problems that we have that are difficult for us, and we so easily lose sight of the fact that Christ has come, and this is a day of grace, and that one day, if you're trusting Christ, you are headed for an eternity with Him, in which death will be completely done away with, and you will forever live with your Lord in the new heavens and new earth. And yet, so easily we lose sight of that, and we get down and discouraged by all manner of things, and that's a very real struggle, but we continually need to come back to this reality and this truth. And it's why we sing about it over and over and over and over again every time we gather on Sundays, because we need this reminder. We need to see Christ as great. We need to look to the greatness of Christ. To say with John Newton, who near the end of his life and his memory was failing, what he did remember, I am a great sinner and Christ is a great Savior. So as you see your sin, as you struggle along, remember Christ, the one prophesied right here in Malachi some 400 years before he came. He has come. And he has extended grace when otherwise we would have no hope of standing before the Lord. In Malachi, in these verses, we're not just told of the purifying work of Christ, but also of God's judgment. And this is the alternative to the purifying work of Christ. This is the alternative to the mercy of God through Jesus Christ. The alternative is to suffer judgment for our sins. The Lord's plan for bringing justice not only involves purifying some, but it also involves judging others. Read with me verse 5. Then I will draw near to you for judgment... I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Jesus' coming will bring purification, but also now we see judgment as well. Judgment will come. Some would receive purification that leads to worship, and others would receive God's judgment for their sin. This word judgment in verse 5, when it says, Then I will draw near to you for judgment, it's the same word we see in verse uh, chapter 2, verse 17, the verse we started with, where they ask, Where is the God of justice? It's the same word. So he's saying, Where is the God of justice? I will draw near to you for justice. Where is the God of judgment? I will draw near to you for judgment. Again, this thinking, oh, if this God of justice would only show up. Really? We see here that's a terrifying reality. Those who repent 
of their sins, trust in Christ, will be purged and purified of their sin. Otherwise, the arrival of the Lord will be a day of disaster for so many. He lists here sorcerers, adulterers. We know Jesus said, if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery in your heart. Those who swear falsely, liars, oppressors of workers, those who are withholding wages from their employees that they'd agreed to, those who cast aside the sojourner, is the good faith foreigner among Israel, whom Israel were told to treat well. There were laws in the law, uh, in the law of Moses, there were rules of how Israel was to treat the sojourner among them well. And then he says, and those who do not fear the Lord. These were all, are all repulsive sins in God's eyes that the people of Malachi's day were guilty of. In the Old Testament, we see a number of places where the day of the Lord is prophesied. And that is a day when the Lord would come and he would bring salvation for his people and he'd bring judgment for the wicked. And, and not just in prophecies about the day of the Lord, but in other prophecies about the Messiah coming, uh, we see that it would entail these two things, a salvation for one group and judgment for the other. And it's often spoken of as though the two things happen side by side, at the same time, that is. So, for example, um, Isaiah 61, 1-2. Again, these will probably be familiar words. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who were bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of the vengeance of our God. So again, you have the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance are side by side. It's both things being proclaimed here. And you see the same thing, uh, again, regarding different places. We see the day of the Lord, Joel 2 is an example and so it seems to be, even here in Malachi, this same thing. That the Lord's going to come, he's going to bring purification for some, that's going to result in worship for the covenant people, and he's also drawing near for judgment. This seems to follow right after each other. Verse 5 follows right on the heels of verse 4. This seems to happen like basically all at the same time. But when we get to the New Testament, we see that the Lord Jesus will accomplish this work this work of saving some and bringing judgment, really it's, it's split up into his two different arrivals. His first coming was primarily to bring about salvation, that is to bring about what we, what we just read in verses 2 to 4, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's primarily what his first coming was. In fact, Jesus quotes the Isaiah 61 text that I just read in Luke chapter 4. But he stops before he gets to the part that says the day of the vengeance of our God. So there he's, he's reading this scroll in the synagogue of Isaiah 61. And he talks about how he has come uh, and the Spirit of the Lord is upon him. And he, and he, and he goes through Isaiah 61.1 and then to verse 2 to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he stops. Why? Because... That's primarily what his first coming was about, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, to proclaim God's grace, to proclaim the good news that there is a way for sinners to be right with God. 
It is not yet the day of the vengeance of our God. Elsewhere, John 12, 47, Jesus says this, If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me does not receive my words, or sorry, the one who rejects me and, and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. So again, his main objective in his first coming was to bring salvation, to announce the gospel, good news, and, and, and what the verse I just read from John 12, he even indicates that judgment is coming on the last day. I did not come this time to judge the world, but to save it. And then he says judgment will be on the last day. There's a, a splitting up of these two works of Christ, if you will. In the Old Testament, the coming of the Messiah, as I said, looks like everything happens at once. Often this is how it's depicted. And so it's kind of like um, if you look at uh, a mountain range from a distance. When we lived in Alberta, you could see the Rockies out of our back door, and it just looks two-dimensional. It just looks like a bunch of mountains side by side. It looks flat. And so as we look from the Old Testament, the prophecies of Christ, it looks like he arrives, he brings forgiveness for some, and judges the rest, and it's the end. But when we get to the New Testament, we see that it's actually split up. There's actually, he comes and accomplishes salvation. That's the main purpose of his first coming. And when he returns... That's when final judgment will occur. And like when we drive to the mountains, that two-dimensional picture, once you get into the mountains, becomes three-dimensional. You see there's, there's depth here. This actually uh, goes for miles and, and so on. So again, in the Old Testament, it commonly looks like the Messiah will come, bring salvation to his people, judgment to the rest. It's all going to happen at the same time. But in the New Testament, we see that this is split up and final judgment and even our own glorification is for his return. When Christ returns, he will finish the work of salvation, yes, but it will also be to tread the winepress of the wrath of God. Judgment will fall. And in this way, God's justice will be upheld. So regardless of whether it seems that a person gets away with their wickedness through this lifetime, seems to have it all, and yet they are wicked, that does not mean God approves of them as these people in Malachi's day accuse God of. They will not escape the judgment of God. It's coming when the Messiah returns, when the Lord Jesus returns. And I don't speak of this casually. You don't speak of this lightly. It's not a fun thought, but it's a sobering reality. And it's sobering because we all deserve it. We all deserve it. Nobody can stand before the Lord. We all deserve it. And if we don't get it, it's purely because God was gracious to us. Which I would submit is cause for certainly soberness, at the thought of God's judgment, but also celebration of the grace of God as well. The reality is this. There's two ways God deals with sin and thereby upholds his justice. Either sin is paid for by Jesus and the forgiven party will be cleansed, or 
the person will pay for their sins themselves by receiving the judgment and wrath of God, which is ultimately, the Bible says, eternity in hell, where their worm does not die and the fire shall not be quenched. God will prove himself just. No sin will be unaccounted for. Nobody knows the day or the hour when the Lord Jesus will return, despite repeated attempts and claims to the contrary. There's just recently yet another one. But today, what we do know is the day of the Lord's favor, when forgiveness is still extended to sinners who repent and trust in Christ. This is our only hope of salvation precisely because God is just. Sin has to be dealt with. It's either paid for by Christ or by sinners. The people of Malachi's day underestimated the justice of God. May none of us do the same, but rather flee instead to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this text and for your word. And Lord, we just confess our weakness to you and our sin to you. And, and we know that we cannot stand before you. We could not endure the day of your coming were it not for your grace and mercy, were it not for the fact that you've chosen to... <clears throat> to show kindness to sinners and to refine us. So Lord, I pray that each one of us would be would come to you for that grace. That you would show yourself merciful and gracious to all of us. I pray that you would help us to rejoice in that grace. Lord, even as we read of your judgment and feel the, the weight of these things, the weight of sin and the weight of hell that awaits so many, I pray that we would first be right with you, that we would rejoice in your grace, and that we would be moved to compassion for sinners, that we would be renewed in our efforts to evangelize, that we would be renewed in our efforts to support ministry, ministry, uh, missionaries and to pray for our missionaries and to do what we can to give to our missionaries. Lord, we, we thank you that you've not left us in darkness. We thank you that you are just. We praise you for being just. I pray that your justice would sit well with us. That even in as we think soberly about these realities, that we would still be at peace with your word and with who you are, and that we would delight in you, and that we would soberly await your justice. And Lord, we just, uh, we thank you for revealing this to us, and again, for the, the day of, of favor that we are currently in, that you haven't just made an end of us, so we praise you for your grace. I pray that we would even now just be encouraged in, in our Lord, in our Savior Jesus Christ, in the one that you spoke of in Malachi's day, that you, Father, sent. May we rejoice in Christ 
even now. May you encourage the faint-hearted and the weak here now. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.